Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aberdeen Standard Investments Emerging Markets Equity Podcast. I'm Nick Robinson from the EM Equity team. In this podcast series, we explore the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets. From key individuals to evolving trends, we seek to answer the five W's who, what, where, when, and why that are shaping investment opportunities in the region. In today's episode, we're going to revisit a topic we touched on in one of our earlier episodes when we explored Chinese technology companies and specifically how the corporate governance of them has evolved. Today, I'm keen to broaden that topic out further and discuss in more depth how the environmental, social and governance landscape has been evolving in China and the degree to which the Chinese government and owners of corporates are actually taking these ESG issues seriously as they run their businesses. So helping me out today on this subject is our resident PhD in corporate governance and senior investment director based in Singapore, David Smith. David, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you. How are you doing? Hi, Nick. Uh, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's been a, a few months since I was on last, but it, it's felt like a few years in terms of the news flow that we've seen. Well, yes, I was going to say, so the last time you were on the podcast, uh, we discussed the Ant-IPO or the upcoming Ant-IPO at that point, which ended up being cancelled, much to all of our surprise. The US got a new president, which was exciting and certainly changes the dynamic between uh, the US and China. And then I think, you know, one of the more interesting and, and quite surprising things, at least for me, was uh, China then coming out and committing to uh, a target of carbon neutrality by 2060. So perhaps we could start there on the E of ESG, the environment. My experience in investing outside of China is that the seriousness with which corporates take environmental issues often comes down to a founder or major shareholder of that company in that the owner very much sets the agenda on sustainability and then that runs down through the organization such that it's very clear which businesses are generally being run with sustainability in mind, which ones are doing it for show and and which ones not at all. So with the Chinese government having made this commitment to carbon neutrality, how important is the corporate sector to that target? And, And when you personally speak to companies, Do you see a a uniform willingness to meet this goal or is it quite uh, varied? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. And as you say, the the carbon neutrality statement from the Chinese government was perhaps the biggest piece of news that we've had in recent months. And obviously, that's going to require tremendous effort across the the Chinese economy and and including the the corporate sector. So if you think about how China is going to achieve this, then there are three overlapping verticals, really, that, that we need to look at. The decarbonization of power, the decarbonization of industry and the decarbonization of, of transport. And obviously the corporate sector plays a big role in, in all of those. And we're gonna, we're gonna see uh, China evolving the power mix. So that's a greater role of renewables, for example, and a, and a reduced role for fossil fuels. And also the need to improve the energy efficiency of, of industry and transportation as well. So uh, moving away from, from uh, energy intensive uh, business models to business models that are, uh, are far less energy intensive. So if you look at what we'll see, the government set the roadmap and the direction for decarbonization and the 14th five-year plan is a continuation directionally of the strategy we saw in the 13th five-year plan. But the government will set the, the regulatory roadmap, will set the direction, but the corporate sector is what needs to really deliver on some of, the, some of these targets. But as you know, the separation of 
state and industry in China is not as binary as we might see in, in other markets. And so state-owned enterprises are actually playing a key role here in decarbonizing, particularly in the power segment uh, where state-owned enterprises dominate, but also in heavy industry around iron, iron and steel and, and cement, for example. So this uh, uh, industry will play a key role there, but many of these larger uh, entities are, are linked to the government in some way. When we speak to companies in China, I think there's a strong willingness to meet this goal of carbon neutrality. And I think what you've seen over the last six months is a lot of companies release their targets for this and the roadmap for uh, net zero. Uh, and I think this is a continuation of what we tend to see in China, that where the government sets a direction and a clear policy direction, then companies tend to align behind that. And that's not necessarily just because it's a, an edict from the government, but also because it's good business sense that you'll see regulatory support for business models and, and businesses that play a key role in this. And I think you'll see increasing regulatory scrutiny and uh, regulatory tightening of business models that, that don't play a role in carbon neutrality or, or will get in the way. And I think you're seeing that uh, in the power sector. And I think you're seeing that in things like the data center sector as well. So I think when we speak to companies, we tend to get positive feedback. We tend to get a positive momentum and a positive direction of travel. And of course, that's presenting lots of really interesting opportunities for investors as well, not just around uh, the folks that make solar and wind components, but also in the companies that are playing a role here in terms of energy efficient solutions for, for industry as well. So it's an interesting time to be looking at China. Yes, thanks. And certainly a, a previous guest I had on the podcast really highlighted some of those investment opportunities, which, which do seem particularly exciting. Perhaps if we move on to some of the kind of social aspects of ESG, there's been a lot of concern recently about labour practices at some companies in China and specifically in the Xinjiang province. As investors, can we get comfort that labour practices of companies that we invest in and indeed, those businesses in their supply chain are in line with standards we would expect globally. And do you see companies doing anything proactively to help us on that issue? Yeah, it's a really important question. As you might imagine, it's been a big part of our work over, well, over the longer term, but certainly in the last few years, it's a part of our work that, that has ramped up incredibly on these topics, but also more broadly. So I think we've seen a lot of engagement with companies, not just in China, but also across this region on supply chain and supply chain management. Uh, as you've mentioned China, but uh, issues around forced labor and recruitment of workers uh, is also an issue across the, the rest of this region, uh, particularly in parts of Southeast Asia around rubber and palm uh, plantations and associated products. I think the way we've looked at this is to go really quite granular with companies uh, around the way they manage their supply chain. So asking quite pointed questions at the way they're looking at these different issues, getting quite granular in terms of the people that we speak to as well. So moving away from sort of IR or, or, or sort of C-suite and towards folks that are directly involved in procurement and understanding the way that they're looking at things. I think what's helped us is the way that we've looked at change as well. So being able to ask companies, you know, what's changed over the last few years, where are you doing more work on supply chain management and how are you working with your clients there, but also triangulating this because one of the interesting parts of our role in, in Asia is that we're looking at companies who in many cases feed into a broader global supply chain. So we may own garment manufacturers, we may own component assemblers, we may own plantations, and these feed into a, a supply chain that, that may end up with a company in 
in the US or Europe who are also grappling with the same issue, but from the other side of the supply chain. So I think what's worked well for us is triangulating through speaking to uh, the companies we own there and internally me speaking to my colleagues in these regions to understand the way that these companies are working with the companies in our region. So challenge for us is, is whether you will uh, be able to get to true verification on, on some of these, but we can certainly ask the way that companies are managing things, the way that they're working with their own supply chain, the way that they're working with their own clients, the way that clients are putting pressure on them uh, or, or increased oversight of them of their supply chain management. So it's a it's been a constant focus front and one and one that we've put a lot of effort to in the last few years to go really granular. And it's been quite pleasing that a lot of the companies we speak to, including in China, have been very keen to speak to us on this in order to, to help us understand the way they're managing that, that supply chain. So we've got really good access recently where companies have been quite uh, quite keen to discuss this, uh, discuss this issue with us. I know, well, that's, uh, that's reassuring that you know, companies are being a bit more proactive on, on that issue. And I, I would imagine third-party verification as well plays quite an important role in that. Is, is that the case? Yeah, you're right. And that's something that we're, we're asking a lot is around this third-party verification. And as like I said, we're getting quite granular around the way that audits are, are done down the supply chain, whether those audits are planned or, or sort of uh, ad hoc or, or surprise audits, if you like, the way that third parties are brought in to verify this. So yeah, we're getting quite granular to get to the, uh, to get to the information that we need. Great, thanks, Ben. Moving on to, to governance. You know, I mentioned uh, at the start of the podcast the cancelled Ant IPO, which appeared to catalyse a whole raft of regulatory action across the tech sector. Where do you see the government going with this regulatory action and you know, what do you think they've been trying to achieve? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's one of those issues that's been sort of lingering or hanging over the technology uh, sector in China. But I think you know, if, you, if you step back a little bit, this, this uh, approach to regulatory enforcement or the work on anti-monopoly uh, in China is not really restricted to China. It's something that we're seeing in other markets as well. So we're seeing the, the global tech giants uh, under scrutiny in the US and Europe. We've seen a number of these companies being called before parliaments or, or equivalent uh, in the last few years to give testimonies on these kind of issues. So this is not really unique to China. And in part, it's because of the growth of their businesses over the last decade or, or more, actually, if you think back to the origins of these businesses, but also the novelty of their business models and the way these different verticals work together, which is a bit unlike the businesses we've seen before. So if you look at the work of someone like Lena Khan, who's now at Columbia Law um, on Amazon and the, the reframing of, of uh, monopoly and antitrust law philosophy, I think that's indicative of the debate within many countries as they, they grapple with these new types of business models. If you look back to China and you look at the context, I think what's happening over the last maybe five years, 10 years, is China's trying to put in uh, uh, stronger foundations for sustainable economic growth. So over the last few years, we've seen China addressing, you know, amongst other things, supply-side reform, shadow banking, and improving uh, long-term technological competitiveness, for example. And now with COVID relatively under control in China, and that's another issue that China's dealt relatively well with in terms of getting COVID under control, I think we're seeing China uh, uh, return to this focus on these uh, strengthened foundations, and now the focus is on the digital economy, which is a very large part of the economy and has been the fastest uh, growing part of the economy. If you look at what the intentions are, I don't think it's the government's goal to, to quote-unquote, nationalise this part of the economy. And I don't think the government is out to destroy innovation. 
I think the government understands that they need private companies to be commercially and competitively run so as to drive the economy forward. And the government's aware of the limitations of leaving that purely to state-owned enterprises. But I do think the government is trying to achieve two things. I think, A, they're trying to achieve consumer protection. I think that's consistent with what we've seen from governments elsewhere around the world. But also sustainability of economic growth and corporate growth by addressing, in part, the leverage that can come from the growth of internet and, and fintech sectors. So those have been the two key thrusts that we've seen in China. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a catch-up in terms of the regulation where the pace of growth of the, uh, the internet or the technology sector has outpaced regulations, and, and that's brought regulatory challenges in China. And as I said, this is happening elsewhere uh, around the world. Now, having said that, whilst I think these regulations and, and this focus is well-intentioned, the pace of regulatory announcements in, in what's been a relatively short period of time has perhaps surprised some and has weighed on the sector. But ultimately, I think it's our view that this is a, a little bit of short-term pain in exchange for longer quality of growth with, with some well-intentioned uh, regulatory focus on businesses. And so, if anything, it highlights the importance of stock-picking and identifying uh, the business models that are really long-term winners and are sustainable uh, long-term winners that can evolve along with this uh, this changing business and regulatory environment in a, in a resilient way. So you know, we're using this as an opportunity to really think hard and, and focus on business models that we think are sustainable leaders uh, and will come out of the other side uh, stronger for this. And would that have any implications in terms of the size of investments you'd be looking at in terms of the market cap of some of these companies? So. Yeah, it seems very clear at the moment that the government has been very much focused on the mega cap Chinese companies. So perhaps there's more opportunity in the smaller companies. Would you agree with that? Or, or you think actually it's a case that yeah, the mega cap companies will end up paying their fines and then, and then move on and their business models will still work perfectly well? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I guess we'll have to see. I mean, I guess there's a correlation. I wouldn't want to say causality, but a correlation between the complexity of businesses and the the number of verticals you operate across and the, the market cap or size of the company. So maybe that's why some of that attention has been focused on the, the larger companies. But I, I think that, you know, as you say, the smaller companies present an interesting opportunity given there's potentially less, uh, less complexity in terms of verticals. But you know, I do think some of the larger companies, it, it could be a case where uh, there's, there's, a, there's iteration of regulatory approaches, there may be some fines, but the question is, what the business model looks like coming out of the other side. And if there's a if there's a scenario whereby business models come out the other side relatively intact, then of course these these could be interesting opportunities as well. Great. Okay, so final question. In in emerging markets, we've always been you know, very active as as you well know in terms of engaging with corporates to try and improve their standing on on various ESG issues. And I think we've been reasonably successful over the years. But you know, one thing I've always felt you know, sitting in either London or Sao Paulo is you know, feeling um, your team had a pretty tough time in, in China is that it's a market where engaging has often been a bit more challenging. Firstly, is hopefully that perception is correct, but, but is it? And uh, do you get a sense that those challenges are becoming less over time and that companies are more willing to engage on these issues? Yeah, I think things are changing. I mean, if I look back, uh, I, I mean, I first started covering China 15 or so years ago, I think that that was a very different, uh, very different place then to paraphrase that the past is a different country and they do things differently there, I suppose, and engagement is different. 
if you look at the economic makeup of China, if you look at the sector makeup of China, if you look at the ownership makeup of Chinese companies, uh, for example, if you take the uh, Chinese index from 15 years ago, you would see a, a landscape that's dominated by heavy industry, that's dominated by capital intense industries, and that's dominated by state-owned enterprises. And you know, maybe to an extent that's informed the, the type of engagement that you have and also you know, potentially the degree of success you've had with engagements. I think if you look at the market now, you've seen a transition to one that's more focused on the knowledge economy. If you look at the largest companies within China, uh, you have the large technology companies who are competing for talent. You see more private ownership of companies or hybrid ownership of companies. So the largest companies now are entrepreneur or privately held companies. And so maybe that informs the, the engagement uh, success that you had. And also, I think what's changed is capital flows. You know, China's uh, economy has opened up relatively over the last 15 years. You're seeing more foreign investment through things like Stock Connect and QFI quotas. And I think that's exposing Chinese companies to a global investor base who are asking these kind of questions. And at the same time, uh, onshore asset managers are increasingly asking these kind of questions around ESG. So the dynamic of the uh, the dynamic of the the engagement landscape, if you like, has evolved. But also, your know, engagement with Chinese companies, you know, as can be the case in, in in a number of emerging markets, as as you as you may agree, it does take time. It's it's a it's a market where where it's important to build relations with with companies and build that trust with companies to demonstrate that this is not a this is not a zero sum game whereby you know, we as shareholders win, but the, the the company loses, if you like. This is this is a situation or this is a practice whereby you spend a lot of time working with companies to explain uh, our perspective on things and the way that implementing certain practices or, or, or disclosing more about practices relating to ESG is actually beneficial to the company. And this can be as simple as you know, illustrating valuation multiples or, or differentials between uh, companies listed in different markets. It could be around uh, highlighting the scores that a company gets from a third-party ESG scorer, for example, uh, and the disparities there, and then putting a lot of work in to explain you know, just just where we think the companies can improve on 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 practice or on disclosure. So I think it's one thing you know, to send a letter and say we think you should do better on this or that. You know, you're sincerely. It's quite another thing to to put in a lot of work and get quite granular with companies about where we think. Uh, changes and improvements can be made and also support that with with evidence and perspectives and i think over time companies have come to appreciate that from us that that, that we're willing to put in that hard work as a as a long-term shareholder and i think that also has led to better outcomes in terms of engagement and certainly you know this is this is non-linear if you like so we're seeing a, an accelerated success i guess if you like on the back of uh, what had been more difficult maybe 15 years ago uh, we're seeing a more uh, accelerated success recently where, where, where we've had a, a lot of uh, uh, good momentum in our engagement with Chinese companies. So it's so certainly positive and encouraging at the moment. Well, great. I mean, that's, that is very encouraging and certainly completely agree with the point that some of the more significant engagements I've been in have been you know, very much multi-year efforts, which you know, really have started out very slowly and then only gained momentum in later years when companies actually began to trust us more and, and take our requests a, a bit more seriously. So, well, great. You know, on that optimistic note, I think that feels like a good place to draw the podcast to a close. So thanks very much, David, for your time today. It's, it's very much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always, uh, always good to be here. 
And thank you everyone today who took the time to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for the next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities podcast brought to you by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and for more great content, visit aberdeenstandard.com.